Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Wednesday, January 23rd. I'm Karen Brown with this, and this is Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, hear from teachers and students on the amount testing required for graduation in Mississippi. Then, nurse practitioners are encouraging legislation that would remove some mandated oversight. Find out more. And we'll learn how teenage attitudes and habits are changing when it comes to drug abuse. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A group of Mississippians are letting legislators know how they feel about standardized testing in public schools. The comments were given at a hearing sponsored by Democratic Representative Tom Miles of Forrest. He tells MPB's Ashley Norwood more. One way that a lot of the children struggle with is having to pass the United States history exam as an exit exam. The federal government, and that is one area that's not even required by the federal government. We're not saying that we don't want to teach history in our schools because we do, but we just don't want that to be a punitive to our students. So one thing that we could do is do away with that. Another option is that even though that we know that the federal law says they have to be tested in these areas, that we don't count it as a graduation requirement. That's one thing that we can fix immediately if if it's the will of the House and the will of the Senate to do that. Other things is that in the long term, we know that we have to have some kind of accountability model to uh, reach the federal laws and their requirements, but we would like to see the state of Mississippi go toward the ACT because at the end of the day, there's no college out there that asked our students when they're applying for scholarship money what they made on that state test. They asked them, what did you make on your ACT? Representative Tom Miles. House Republican Gary Chisholm agrees. The District 37 representative says there are too many tests. We really need to cut back on some of the testing. For instance, we're the one of the only states, if not the only state, that does a social studies test. And you have to have an end-of-subject test for social studies that if you don't pass it, you don't walk. So we need to do away with that one. The other three tests are required by the federal government. I think we could do better by doing a version of the ACT for those three tests, something that you might get something out of other than just a passing or failing grade. It seems like this is getting the support of both parties. What do you expect? Do you, do you expect this, some things to pass and some things to change? You know, the Department of Education is opposed to changing it. So it makes it really hard to, in your face, go against what they're saying. You know, they claim that ACT does not work for this, but other states have the ACT as their measuring stick. It will work. Representative Gary Chisholm. Joyce Helmick is president of the Mississippi Association of Educators. She tells our Ashley Norwood what they're learning from their members. What we're hearing from our members all across the state, teachers, students, and our community members uh, is that state testing is um, causing us a lot of anguish and it's not it's taking up a lot of time. Uh, teaching is 
being shortchanged in the classroom today because of so much of the testing. How problematic could that be? It's very problematic. If you don't have time to teach what you need to teach, then what do you do? And so what we're finding is that our, our students are not getting some of the attention that they need because their uh, teachers are teaching to the test. The other thing that I want to mention, and we um, took a lot of interviews from teachers across the state, is that what we're not seeing so much in hearing in some of our reports is the anguish that it causes our students. They come to school, they're upset, they're worried. When you have a third grader or a kindergartner worried about going to school because they have to take some kind of test that's going to put them or their teacher in some kind of category that's going to hurt them. Uh, That's a problem. And then we have high school students who say, we're not prepared for college because we're spending too much time working on that test. And of course, uh, we had a little over 600 students last year who could not graduate because they had not passed one of those state tests. Um, That is horrible. (laughs) So what do you recommend, and how do you, you know, test or measure the students' knowledge um, while also eliminating some of the pressures of state tests? Well, there are ways to test. There are ways to evaluate our students. Uh, I think that what we should do is bring our teachers, our administrators, and uh, our experts to the table and listen to what they have to say, because I... I'm not going to speak for everyone, but I feel like that our teachers have a solution to this problem. And our students know what they need. Our teachers know what they need. And I think if we just settle down and go with those teachers and listen to our educators, we can come up with something that will uh, solve this problem. MAE President Joyce Helmick. Lynn Snyder is a teacher at Murrah High School in Jackson. She tells our Ashley Norwood the testing leads to other issues. Every issue that we have in Mississippi schools, you can trace it back to state testing. The discipline issues, the teacher shortage, the amount of money we spend on tests that could be spent on the things that we don't have the money for. It all comes down to this huge focus on state testing. So there's got to be a change. Talk about the current model. What, For those who don't know, what is it and what is the biggest issue with it? Well, the biggest issue is I don't think we understand the current model. We have two, two one company does our English and math tests, another company does our U.S. history and I don't even know who does our other tests. I mean, we have changed the state test for English. I know I used to teach it and understood it, and the test changed twice. And, of course, now I'm not teaching state tests. I teach English 3 and get students ready for ACT, which makes sense. And I really couldn't tell you sometimes what scores mean what, especially since cut scores change every year with state tests. So we never really know for sure um, how we're doing. Also, because it's an umbrella model where someone has to always fail according to the way they're they're evaluating schools, there's always going to be an F or a D school no matter how hard they work and how much change they make. Personally, how does that affect your job? It's like, you know, you're teaching students day to day, but then you also have to teach to a test. Is there ever a conflict? Um, Can you really judge your success in the classroom because of that? I don't think so. I think... um, 
certainly if every child came to school with the exact same benefits and had the exact same home life, certainly you could do that, but we don't get that. Some of us teach students with a lot more challenges than others, and that does make a difference whether we want to admit that or not. Um, I think that a lot of times we focus on this A, B, C, and D, and F of tests, and we're not looking at what's really going on in the schools. There's some amazing things that go on in my school with arts, with our speech and debate team, uh, just amazing things, and state tests don't tell you that. What's your recommendation? Because it seems that some of those tests are considered exit exams, mm-hmm. and students have to pass it to graduate. What are you asking the legislature to consider? Well, they've already made some changes so that if a student makes, say, for example, a 17 on the English part of the ACT, that can take the place of the state test. So why don't we just use the ACT? It's it's consistent. It's accurate. We know for the past 50 years, most of the colleges in this area accept ACT as a standard for being college ready. So I don't know why we can't do that here. If we want to prove that our children are college ready, then let's use the ACT. Jackson teacher Lynn Snyder. Sarah Hebert is a Pisgah High School student. She gives her perspective. From a student's perspective, it is incredibly stressful, and a lot of us don't even take it seriously because it doesn't affect our GPA, our college admissions, nothing like that. We don't get graded for it. It takes away too much of our actual testing time, like like teaching time, and it causes a lot of test anxiety around, like, general just general test anxiety and it can be a burden to mental health. I remember being in school and we used to talk about you know it just didn't seem fair because you got some people who just aren't good with standardized testing but you know they're, they're smart people is that something you agree with? There are some students that are good students and they they're incredibly smart but they're not good at taking tests and then students who come from higher income backgrounds are more likely to have outside tutoring, to have a better education, and to be taught more things than people in a general public school or like the regular curriculum. So they're more likely to do better on tests than lower income families. So what do you hope will come of this meeting of you, you know, giving your testimony? I hope that we don't have to take away standardized testing entirely, but just make it less testing because we spend I think the ratings I found were we have 112 tests by the end of our senior year and that's too much and so I hope that we'll have less testing and more focus on growth as students instead of being an objective number. Pisgah student Sarah Hebert with MPB's Ashley Norwood. Coming up, nurse practitioners are encouraging legislation that would remove some mandated oversight. Find out more. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Robin Young. R. Kelly's record label has dropped him after the series documenting allegations of sexual abuse of minors. A mute R. Kelly activist responds. Everybody in the record industry, friends, have said for decades that they knew about his sexual abuse of children, and they did nothing because he was such a big star. Next time, here and now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
Mississippi ranks 50th in the nation in access to quality health care. Nurse practitioners in the state are trying again this legislative session to overturn a regulation to allow them to practice medicine without oversight or collaboration from physicians. Mississippi is one of several states that restrict nurse practitioners and has a mandatory collaboration rule requiring them to pay monthly fees to doctors to check a certain percentage of patients' charts. David Hebert is CEO of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, and he tells us more. One of the things that we are talking a lot about are what are the ways in which we can retire, reduce, or get rid of artificial barriers to practice. Uh, There are problems across the country, and uh, Mississippi is no stranger to this, that there are antiquated laws uh, which restrict an ability of a nurse practitioner to practice. Uh, What do I mean by that? Uh, Essentially, there's a requirement uh, in Mississippi that there is a mandatory collaborative requirement. And essentially what happens is the nurse practitioner has to pay a physician uh, X thousand dollars a month in order to have this agreement. And essentially it's a permission slip. Nurse practitioners diagnose, treat, prescribe across the country. And this is one of those antiquated uh, regulations which need to be retired, which will only enhance access to health care. Let me interrupt for a second to ask you, um, does that mean this collaborative agreement that a nurse practitioner has to work with a doctor, they cannot work independently to treat people? What essentially requires is this collaborative agreement. And and let me be clear on what the collaborative agreement means. Uh, In many respects, it is um, a way in which physicians will uh, essentially review charts uh, per month, X number of charts per month. It is not a situation which a lot of misconceptions uh, endure about this, that there is somehow a physician looking over the shoulder of the nurse practitioner while he or she delivers health care, that they're necessarily in the same practice. Oftentimes, uh, the physician is not there while the nurse practitioner is practicing. Uh, these are really fictions. They're, they're artificial barriers which need not exist. Would a nurse practitioner be mostly involved in primary care, or are there specialties like doctors have? Uh, About, I would say, 70 to 80 percent of uh, nurse practitioners across the country uh, are in uh, family care. They're in primary care. But increasingly, you're seeing nurse practitioners in uh, acute care, post-acute care. They're doing uh, um, anything from uh, uh, working in the hospital to uh, dermatology, Uh, There's all kinds of specialties that nurse practitioners are getting involved with. What else is Mississippi not doing to ensure that care and access? Well, Mississippi needs to start with things like this that reduce, and these are things that don't cost any money. Uh, By reducing these barriers to practice, um, these are things that uh, will not cost the taxpayers one dime. Uh, Clearly, anything that the state can do to uh, increase access to health care, and I know that there's always different uh, proposals, whether it's uh, uh, access to Medicaid and things of that nature. Uh, and that's another related issue, which is uh, you don't have a lot of physicians in rural areas. You have nurse practitioners in a lot of r- rural areas that accept Medicaid. Uh, you've got more nurse practitioners who accept Medicare and Medicaid um, than do physicians. So, I mean, again, this is a low-cost, no-cost way of increasing access.
Is there anything else the legislature can do in terms of making laws or removing laws that would help uh, accessing care? Well, I think the extent to which um, the legislature removes uh, uh, antiquated uh, laws, so there's a there's a, a bill right now, uh, House Bill 234, uh, with Representative Scoggins uh, uh, taking the lead on that bill that retires the uh, collaborative requirement. Um, you know, any ways that they can uh, pass laws such as these, that uh, they can provide uh, more educational opportunities, loans and grants to people who want to go to nurse practitioner school. Uh, those are all very positive things. Is there support from physicians for nurse practitioners? You know, there's a lot of support from physicians around the country and in Mississippi as well. Uh, what we tend to see uh, is that in the practice situation, the physician and the nurse practitioner work extremely well together. They um, rely upon one another oftentimes and, 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 and talk with one another when issues arise. The problem is when you look at organized medicine and the National Association or the state associations, which look at this as a turf battle. They look at it as an issue of competition, and sometimes they try to point to false issues of quality when, in fact, NPs provide high-quality care. David Hebert is the CEO of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Coming up, we'll learn how teenage attitudes and habits are changing when it comes to drug abuse. That's after a Southern Remedy Health Minute. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, this is Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Nursing and Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and you're listening to a Southern Remedy Health Minute. Why is it so much harder to lose the belly fat when you get a little older? So you think about kids. Kids are always moving, and so they're constantly burning calories when they do that. As we get older, we just naturally become less active. You know, the majority of our jobs are sedentary-type jobs, so we burn less calories during the day. But we didn't really change our diet. You know, we we ate a lot of stuff when we were kids, and we never gained any weight. We have become less active, but our diet did not shift down with that. For more health tips and medical info, tune in every weekday at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup, where the doctors are always in. For MPB Think Radio, I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair is available at bcbsms.com. Live healthy, live blue. Can't get to a radio? Well, don't worry. MPB Think and Music Radio are available online and on our MPB public media app. It's simple. Just log on to our website at mpbonline.org to get started. This is MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Teenage attitudes towards drugs and tobacco are changing across the country. That's according to an annual report by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. The 2018 Monitoring the Future survey tracks annual drug use trends among 8th, 10th, and 12th grade students. It also looks at attitudes and perceived risks of specific drugs. It's also used by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to monitor the nation's substance use patterns among teens. Dr. Wilson Compton is Deputy Director of of NIDA. He tells MPB's Ezra Wall opioid use trends are positive. Well, this survey is primarily capturing kids as they're just starting down that pathway. So the good news is that 
teens have been hearing the message about how risky these substances are, and perhaps also because doctors aren't prescribing as many of them, they're not as available in households to be uh, uh, taken up and to be used by teens. So we see the numbers are very encouraging that many fewer teens are using the prescription opioids in 2018 than in previous years. For example, among the 12th graders, uh, Monitoring the Future found that just over 3% are using prescription opioids in 2018, and that compares to about 10% just a few years ago. So that's a, a, a trend in the, a very good direction. What does the study show us about, uh, about uh, teenagers and their tendency toward the e-cigarette? Well, all of us have been quite surprised at how popular vaping has become among teens that uh, according to the 2018 data, we now see that about 37% of 12th graders, 32% of 10th graders, and even almost 20% of the 8th graders report vaping in 2018, one, one product or another. I hear a lot of teenagers uh, uh, citing maybe it's pseudoscience, maybe it's science, it's stuff that their friends pass them. Uh, it's uh, information uh, that that says, well, e-cigarettes and, and vaping is uh, not as dangerous as regular smoking, and, and so it, it's a better activity for me to be involved in. What do we, what do we know, actually know about the science behind vaping? Well, it appears that vaping devices don't have the same level of toxic chemicals, but that doesn't make them safe. Uh, most of us have thought about vaping as an alternative for confirmed adult smokers and understand that some people will use these devices to help them quit smoking when there's a clear trade-off. But for teens, this may be their first exposure to nicotine, and so it may be an entree into a lifelong addiction to nicotine and multiple tobacco products. That's really the concern, is other research shows us that those that start with a vaping device are more likely to transition to smoked cigarettes in future years. How many kids are using those uh, vaping devices this year versus a year ago? Well, that's what's really surprised us is how rapidly it's increased. For instance, if we look at just what percentage of youth are using these devices in any given month, it's doubled in the last year. So the number that are, are, are using uh, vaping devices to administer nicotine. So, you know, using it to take in a, a habit-forming or addictive substance has almost doubled for all three grades in the past year. We, it's pretty remarkable that it increases that fast. The uh, sort of quintessential thing for parents to be worried about is whether their kids are on pot, and we've been having those discussions for many decades now. So what what is the new data on marijuana use and uh, these 8th, uh, 10th, and 12th graders? Well, the data on marijuana use is much more mixed than for other substances. Uh, we find that the rates have neither increased nor decreased for the most part over the last few years. In fact, if we look just over the last couple of years, the 10th graders seem to be increasing in their use of marijuana, but we do see some declines in the 8th grade. So the youngest group seem to be getting the message from their parents and from their peers, this is not a, a safe or a healthy habit for such uh, uh, individuals. Uh, one of the concerning factors in marijuana is the number of youth using marijuana on a daily or near daily basis. And indeed, we see in Monitoring the Future that about 6% of high school seniors report using marijuana almost every day. And so that means that in any given more, you know, a typical class around the country, two or three children uh, in the 12th grade will be using marijuana 
almost every day. Clearly not very good for their memory and learning. In Mississippi, we see uh, a lot of uh, health-related disparities and uh, many other kinds of disparities uh, according to a a family's uh, income level, according to a family's racial background, uh, etc. Does does this report look at all at at these trends in terms of race or income or or other uh, sort of subcategories? Absolutely. We're able to look at differences according to boys and girls in the different grades and according to different racial and ethnic groups and different family educational backgrounds. Uh, and one of, the, one of the things that has surprised many people is that substance use tends to be as common among uh, whites as it is among minority youth. Uh, and while there are some exceptions, and there's an awful lot of data in this survey, and if you want to learn more about it, I encourage you to look at our website uh, at the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Our website is drugabuse.gov. The uh, report is called Monitoring the Future, and uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Wilson Compton, who's the Deputy Director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Fix It 101. Then at 10, it's Everyday Tech. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. To see our team's updates throughout the day, follow MPB News on Twitter. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB public media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio.